Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our June 2023 Journal Club episode. How are you, Ben? I'm really good, mate. Halfway through the year already. It's gone crazy. I know. How mm. did that happen? <laughs> you must be so coming up fun. to your first 100 days of your new job. That's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's going well. A uh, quick bit of news. Don't forget, uh, we've opened the registrations for Simulation Reconnect uh, in November this year. And as those of you who came last year might remember, a nice little one-day symposium on all things simulation and a good chance to connect with the sim community, plus some workshops the day before. And to be honest, the easiest way to find the registration for this is just to go to the Simulcast website, www.simulationpodcast.com. And there's a little tab there that says Sim Reconnect 2023. And you can have a look through the program and, or at least the draft program and, uh, and the masterclass, uh, opportunities. So I'm looking forward to it, Ben. And we get to, I feel like this year we get to sort of just be participants, not so much giving a talk. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to going to some of the workshops. Actually, it's going to be a yeah. good time. Excellent. Mm. All right, well, why don't we get into these articles, and I think I'm going to do the first couple, and then you're going to do the next couple to kind of thematically link them a little bit. But the one I'm going to start with is all about psychological safety. In fact, it's called 12 Tips for the Pre-Brief to Promote Psychological Safety in Simulation-Based Education. Uh, Susan Somerville, Neil Harrison, and Stephen Lewis team from Dundee in Scotland, who we do know from many simulation worlds. And it was published in Medical Teacher, May 2023. So not a sim journal, more a educational journal. And to give a little prelude to this paper, um, you know, the key points, I guess, are pretty familiar probably to this audience. Simulation is emotionally activating. That can promote, but also hinder learning. And so recognizing and managing that activation by facilitators is probably a fruitful uh, thing to do. And we do know that the pre-brief is critical. Now, then in terms of this paper, uh, the 12 tips format is pretty well known in um, Medical Teacher. And we know that, that people have done that format for lots of things. And so it's designed to be a really practical thing for uh, the reader. The paper does start with a little bit of a deep dive into psychological safety and clarifying what that is about being safe, not soft, um, and I really emphasise that the idea about being psychological safe isn't just so people feel good, it's so that they feel able to take a risk, which we know is foundational to learning. So they present their 12 tips uh, not as a formula or recipe as to how to approach a pre-brief or even a sim, but rather, I think, as a synthesis of literature um, and obviously based on the author's experience as well. Uh, and they have a nice little infographic in there that lists out the 12 tips. Uh, and I thought all of their 12 tips, and I'll mention most of them in here, uh, made a lot of sense. Um, I'm not sure that all of them restricted to the pre-brief. And I think for me, probably by way of overview, I think there's much more in this than just the 12 tips for the pre-brief. I think this is 12 tips really about creating a psychologically safe place for learners to take those risks um, that involve the pre-brief in a lot of cases, but also other aspects of the sim design, delivery and debriefing. So the first uh, ones they come up with are about learning objectives 
actually having them, ensuring they're aligned, uh, and then making them clear to the learners. Uh, Making the idea about developmental feedback intentional. Uh, And then they have a series of ones which they've put into a category of implementation uh, using a framework like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, saying that people do have needs in simulation as well to be respected and to feel safe and to have an opportunity for growth. Uh, A couple of ones I guess I'd find a little bit more contentious, uh, confidentiality, uh, but I think I would substitute respect in there, the idea of orienting the learner, underlining the idea of simulation as a social practice and being mindful of that and negotiating a fiction contract and one I particularly liked don't rush the pre-brief spend that time to set the scene and then the last category of tips they put in there talk about steering the pre-brief asserting some version of the basic assumption uh, adopting a position of humility and conceptualizing the debrief as an extension of the pre-brief uh, and I was felt very happy because Simulcast actually got cited in some of their uh, literature as well, which I felt very happy about. But actually, they really do take quite a broad look, and there's lots of great articles in there. I think if nothing else, read this paper for where it directs you to read more on some of these topics. I liked all of them, Ben. Um, the sort of neat little connecting them to a formula for the pre-brief, it doesn't quite fit that, but they say that themselves. They said this is a essentially a narrative review of literature that we've organized in a way that is fairly easy for people to digest. And I'm sort of glad they didn't make it into a formula or recipe because I don't think that's uh, really how this concept should be enacted. Uh, How did it land on you? I, very similarly, um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a very nuanced, lovely summary of a good decade and a half of work on psychological safety in the simulation setting. Uh, and I think it actually has been quite a long time since uh, the simulation community has really put in a paper, at least a reflection on anything beyond uh, that first wonderful seminal article, establishing a safe container for learning in simulation. And so there's just so much clinical nuance experience that's in there. I agree. There are still some things that don't sit great with me in terms of I'm not convinced all like that a pre-brief is a checklist. And if you say those things, then psych safety will be achieved. And I also think there's probably some things that we did need to do 10 years ago that we just don't need to do now because people are socialized to this in a way that they weren't 10 years ago. Um, and so for me, fiction contract is not something that I think is very important at all. Um, I think most of the time my teams are totally on board. They've done this a million times. Uh, and it's more about making sure they feel comfortable that they're not going to be tricked and that they know what their goals and their objectives are. But what I loved about this paper is exactly what you've highlighted where uh, they acknowledge that, you know, essentially as you get to a level of adaptive expertise, there are different little tools that you may use. And in particular, that um, emphasis on scenario design, which I haven't seen come up as a core element influencing psychological safety. And I think I've just found that so true in my own scenarios when I run it. If you've designed a sim well with clear objectives that are simple and right for this group and you're clear with them about it, that is so deactivating or like diffusing for that group before they even jump in. So I just thought there was a lot of wisdom, really nice paper. Yeah, I think you're right about that design issue. 
because a lot I think a lot of those threats to like psychological safety are the uncertainty and wondering what is going to be sprung on people that they're unfamiliar with, not qualified to engage with, and that it would be unrealistic as a task for them. Uh, and I think it was a small point, but on that tip, which was number two about having clear uh, intended learning objectives with an appropriate level of challenge, they nicely, I think, dealt with the issue of transparency. And do you want to say, oh, this is what the sim is about and remove some of the challenge versus say, this is what the sim about is about and remove some of that uncertainty. And uh, once again, it's just a matter, I think, of being really clear about what your sim is for and also knowing what sim is good for. And if it is about making a diagnosis based on subtle physical signs, eh, it's probably not a great sim. Uh, so I think uh, that was well uh, well made point uh, because it is under-recognized, I think, as a source of threat to psychological safety. All right, well, congratulations. Thank you again to the team from Dundee for that nice offering. All right, so the next we're going to something that's mm, very hardcore empiric research uh, from our friends uh, at the MARTA. So this is Sarah Jansen and two collaborators with a paper titled How Do Maternity Teams Perform in and Perceive a Role-Based Approach to Teamwork in Maternity Emergencies, a Qualitative Study and Simulation. And this is from IJOS, the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, uh, just out. Uh, so to kind of set the scene here, and it's actually a little bit involved, so I'll step through it. Uh, they talk a little bit about teamwork in maternity emergencies and make the point that, at least in their view, and I think I would agree with it, that the idea of having really clearly described roles and a really clearly described process of role allocation is a relatively new concept compared to some other teams in healthcare who maybe have uh, gone through the process of trying to define roles uh, and the process of role allocation and the one they talk about are medical emergency teams, but I think we've probably seen the same process uh, for teams in, I remember the first trauma team uh, paper I ever read was written in 1995, so it's actually not that long ago in the scheme of things, says the old lady. They make the point this is relatively new. So they wanted to study um, how do roles actually play out in maternity emergencies uh, in simulation and explore what the clinicians who participate in those sims think of that. Uh, and I'm just going to declare a couple of things right up front. Uh, one is there are a couple of awkward moments for me reading this because I think I've got a slightly different view of teamwork. Uh, and in particular, I don't like this terminology about the pit crew approach in medical emergency teams because I think that suggests that what we have to do can be easily described through a linear process and I don't know that really high-performing teams uh, follow such a linear process. I think they have much more fluidity. That I don't think takes away from the paper but I just think some of the words and language that they couch it in uh, you know, may or may not be shared by everyone's view of teamwork. So they studied participants in a maternity emergencies team training day. So this involved doctors and midwives. It was a full day training. And at the outset, they did a fair bit of work presenting a model for maternity team roles and responsibilities. So they taught quite a set model. Um, and there's a nice little diagram there of the different positions that people take around uh, the birthing woman or the maternity situation, um, like airway and abdomen, etc., etc. 
Uh, and then what they really went deep and studied were the second scenario of the day and the last scenario of the day. And the second scenario of the day was an eclamptic seizure, one of those maternity emergencies. And the sixth scenario of the day was a postpartum cardiac arrest, which I don't think they quite said, but reading between the lines, I assume it's something like an amniotic fluid embolism. But anyway, they ended up getting CPR in a postpartum situation. So pretty rare, but obviously something that teams worry about um, in that context. So they studied these two, these teams in these two scenarios, and they did two things. One was not qualitative at all. In fact, it was very quantitative. They did a video analysis of the cases and coded what they called role-related activity uh, for each of the participants. So they kind of looked at things like, did people stick to their roles? What was their task load? Did they cross over? Were they underemployed or were they overemployed? And I found that that bit of it, actually a little bit hard to know what to take away because I do think in any given context there's going to be times when there's more or less load on different team members and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And also making a judgment about whether people not doing something means they're not necessarily contributing. They may well be just adding to team situation awareness and having a little bit of heads up time, which is quite good. So um, they didn't make any particular claims, so I don't disagree with them, but I wasn't sure what to make of that in-depth kind of coding of what people were doing. But the second thing they did, the uh, thematic analysis of the debriefs and some post-course interviews with the participants, where they talked to them a little bit about how did you find this role stuff uh, and how did you find the process of doing it. And unsurprisingly, you, you get the sense that people felt better about the roles by the time they're in the sixth scenario than when they had just started the day in the second scenario. But they found four themes about understanding the situation um, was important so that the team could better match the team to the tasks, uh, that there did need to involve some selection and prioritization of roles for different contexts. Uh, clearly, there was a difference in the suitability of different roles for different participants that might depend on either their profession or their seniority. And this idea that there was over that day a perceptual shift in the understanding of roles. So is this good work? Absolutely. I mean, this is such a lovely deep dive uh, seemingly in a time in this craft group's uh, evolution of thinking about teamwork. And so I think that is really good work to do, to be having those conversations about uh, what should roles be, how adaptability should we be, and how fluid should we be. Um, and I guess the only risk for me is if we make the roles the goal instead of the team performance the goal. And I think that's always a risk, and I've seen that with ACLS. Everyone occasionally just overly rigidly st sticking to the roles instead of thinking, hang on, maybe we need to adapt them for this particular context. So I think that's a risk. That's clearly not what happened here. But I think um, shifting towards better understanding of roles is good work to do. Yeah, absolutely. I well, I have a conflict. You do. You do. But I like the paper, and I thought it was a very thoughtful approach to analysing their team training. Um, the themes in there, or some of the ideas, made me think back to Hicks and Petrosaniak's Human Factor paper, uh, which for me was the first time that someone really reframed. We've got to move away from A, B, C, D, E to actually there are different tasks for different resuscitations uh, and allocating the right group of people to that task is an important teamwork skill. And so I quite enjoyed being a very non-maternity person, the um, 
division of those tasks into abdomen, pelvis, intubation, all these extra things that were different to other resuscitations that I'd be familiar with. Um, it do, I think with it, when it comes to their findings, I think, um, I enjoyed their conclusions, but I continue to be surprised that teams in every subspecialty with a paper like this are finding the same things surprising, i.e. coming to learn that explicit role allocation is important, that understanding the goals of the resuscitation need to be made explicit and that transparency of thinking, etc., is really vital and important. And uh, I just still feel like healthcare teams really haven't fully recognised that ad hoc teaming and the ability to form these dynamic crews to focus on those tasks in uncertain environments is uh, a predictable occurrence and therefore we should be investing and considering this a core skill that needs to be deliberately rehearsed. So I applaud, you know, Sarah's work there and I uh, hope we continue to, you know, get to the point where this is old news in 10, 20 years time. Totally. And, and, and it is much needed. I mean, we at Gold Coast run a very similar course based on learning a lot from Sarah's mm. team up at the Marta. Uh, and it is, it's clear how this is a big leap for most of the people that come along to start thinking about this and talking about it uh, in a way that I, I do observe the trauma team has moved a little bit further ahead from having been doing it a little bit longer. And maybe there's an easier way to match team to tasks in that context. I think that's the other thing is uh, although all the teams tend to have similar struggles, they play out a little bit differently. And I think that's why everyone feels the need to do their own teamwork studies. Um, I just keep on thinking back mm. to uh, Tannenbaum and Salas and their book teams that work, and they refer to this whole concept as coordination instead of just thinking about role allocation. And I think it's probably quite good because obviously there's multiple levels and layers of uh, adapting and matching the team to the tasks that um, are pretty important. But yeah, keep at it, please, Sarah and team. Uh, it's important work to do. I do. I do want to push, but you were talking a little bit about the difference between clear role allocation and pit crew kind of stuff. And what I would say, I think, is that sometimes when this is new, I almost feel like that's the difference between adaptive expertise and routine expertise, you know, that, that we do sometimes have to actually teach the recipe before we can get people to that next step where they can uh, adapt on the fly. And so I think there is an element of teamwork training that does need to have that relatively behaviorist kind of lens of this is just what you need to do. And then you move beyond that to go, actually, no, you don't. But I know why I'm not in this moment. Yes, I'll, I'll give you part marks for that. <laughs> well, as I said before, I, I just think the risk is that then people overly anchor to that and then don't oh, adapt. Yes, but we, we're in violent agreement, really. I, I'm with you. There does need to be some basics in there. <laughs> and, uh, I guess if I have to suffer through being called pit crew, then that's okay. That's hardly the worst yeah, thing in the yeah. world. It is not a terrible metaphor, I agree. <laughs> All right, time for you to do your papers. Well, I was greedy. because You know, it's actually pretty rare, I think, that we both put the same paper in the Dropbox folder without knowing. I know, it is. Um, and I got to be a reviewer on this one, <laughs> and I was so excited um, and grateful to be a part of this. So uh, we're going to talk about two papers that take different looks and approaches at understanding cognitive load. 
So the first one is entitled Measuring Cognitively Demanding Activities in Pediatric Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. It's by Barr et al. and uh, published recently in Advances in Simulation. And I just thought this paper was seriously clever, Vic. Uh, we have talked about cognitive load a reasonable amount on this podcast and in other formats. Uh, just to refresh our listeners, if you're completely new to the theory, cognitive load theory essentially argues that our brain has limited resources at any one time to devote to learning or performance. And theorists have argued that there are three components to cognitive load. Intrinsic, which is essentially the amount of brain energy you need to devote to just learning something new or doing something. Extraneous load, which is essentially the work you need to filter out irrelevant or distracting information and noise while you're trying to do the thing you're trying to do. And then germane load, which is the work we need to do to embed new knowledge onto existing long-term memory schematics to ensure that what we learn today is actually remembered into the future. And for me, at least prior to this paper, cognitive load theory has really just been that. It's a theory that makes total sense and it feels true but which we have to kind of acknowledge it is just sort of a mental model for how our brain works. And and this, for me, with this paper, it was so exciting because it takes a very quantitative researchy lens to that issue by proposing that we can measure the differences in oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin concentration in the prefrontal cortex as a marker for cognitive activity, uh, which I've heard referred to as brain sets, essentially. I like that. ICU. I like that. Brain that sets, yes. Yep. Brain sets, yeah. So you're measuring the brain sets, and if they drop in certain areas of the brain, then you are uh, making the inference that that part of the brain is working Makes hard. Sense. Yeah. Uh, so let's break this down in a little bit more detail because there is some very technical stuff in this paper, but its application to me is just oh so exciting. So the technology is called functional near infrared spectroscopy. It's essentially a SATS probe for your brain. You hook up a bunch of sensors to the skull and the equipment measures the light absorbing difference between different types of hemoglobin. And the article argues we can use this deoxygenation as a marker of increased cognitive activity. And so to test that, they ran a series of pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest scenarios with um, pre-hospital staff to both measure the cognitive load of that activity and also develop the technology required to do so. So this was described as a cross-sectional observational study aiming to characterize the cognitive activity of these pre-hospital responders. So they recruited, interestingly, whole teams that typically work together, which I quite liked, and then run them through a pre-brief and a scenario involving pediatric CPR and looking after a distressed family member as well. So they ran 18 simulations at three different facilities with 122 participants, and then they watched the videos of the simulations and then watched for key spikes in brain deoxygenation during particular clinical events or tasks. And they were able to identify key steps in the resuscitation that were associated with those spikes, such as doing a primary assessment, calculating and preparing pediatric drug doses in an arrest was identified as a, a significant cognitive t- task, uh, rhythm checks and defibrillating. And so the article then dives deep on some very highly technical information on how to filter that captured information, which I think is important to publish. I didn't fully understand it, but I'm hoping somebody else who's smart will be able to use that and keep doing this stuff. Um, and essentially, they were doing things like data cleaning and uh, describing the challenges in finding the difference between physiological changes in oxygenation 
and physiological ch- and changes in your oxygenation due to cognitive effort. So you don't really care that there's a spike when someone kneels or lifts equipment if you're trying to measure cognitive load, but you do care if they're having a spike when they have to think about a new task. So that part of the article has a lot of maths that I didn't fully understand, but to me, for the day-to-day educator, there is some really cool stuff here. Uh, and, you know, in the future, we may be able to use this technique to measure cognitive load, which could be really helpful if we're designing or testing new pathways or protocols or trying to understand where our pain points are in a resuscitation. It further builds on the evidence that cognitive load is a real thing and can be measured and described. And for me, I actually now quote this article very practically a lot because it identified very clearly where our brain has to work hard. So calculating pediatric drug doses in a resuscitation. And so that empowers me to highlight, for example, that we have solutions to that. So through distributed cognition, we can have pre-calculated drug books like the statewide CREB book that can then outsource that cognitive load to a resuscitation tool, which strengthens the argument of the value of that to a resuscitation. So really just exciting, very geeky stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to get a bit excited when you see the kind of formulas that are in the manuscript here, which I can't even say. And then if you see a sentence that talks about Python 3.8 and the pandas 1.2.2 and the numpy 1.21.5 and the skippy 1.7.3, and we realize we're talking about computer programmers that know a lot more than uh, certainly anyone I know in simulation. So mm-hmm. like you, I was in no position to critique any of that, but uh, – but they made it really clear. I mean, I think they had that in there, as you said, for the people who need the technical um, information. But it was also very clear to someone like us to go, ah, okay, here's what they measured in terms of cognitive load. Here's how it correlated or didn't with those clinical events. And I think I agree with you, lots of um, opportunities. It made me go down such a deep dive that I'd even wrote a blog post about it for the ICENET. Uh, and really, I looked at quite a few other bits of work on how people measuring cognitive load. And I guess we're familiar with the uh, subjective measures and the things like the NASA task load index, all good, but usually have to then be applied in retrospect. Whereas the opportunity here, and there was actually a paper or two um, out of Adam Shalesky's group in Canada, uh, where people were seeing cognitive load measures and then adjusting their scenario in real time, which is kind of interesting. That sounds like a lot of cognitive load for a simulation facilitator. But we can see the theoretical, <laughs> I mean, maybe if there's a few options of which way to go, depending on what feedback you're getting from your participants. The other opportunity that I see is to think about balancing cognitive load in a team through reorganizing things like roles, structures and functions. If your team is preparing to optimize their ability to do certain tasks, then I think we might see that if some team members are consistently overloaded, we may choose different um, tasks to allocate to different roles. So I think lots of opportunity. And uh, it seems like there's lots of people doing this kind of work. So, and what's more, some of those, some of those little things you wear now looking quite stylish, Ben. Definitely the 2024 autumn catalog, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, skinny jeans. Hello, F nurse. Yeah. (laughs) We'll let people Google F nurse. Well, any other thoughts? People are using this all over the place for elite sports training, altitude research, rehabilitation, ergonomics, the brain sats, as it turns out, 
are going to help provide helpful information for a lot of different areas where people are trying to understand what the brain is doing under certain conditions. Yeah, I'd love to see it mm-hmm. in CPR coaching, actually, because uh, there's two different kind of schools of thought at the moment with CPR coaching. Uh, one where you are just focusing on getting good quality CPR and one where you are, you know, the, the Betsy Hunt model, which is you are essentially coordinating all of the defibrillation, mm-hmm. intubation, and et cetera. And I think that that is mm. too much cognitive load for someone if they might see a cardiac arrest mm. every mm-hmm. one every 10 years. Uh, whereas if you worked in a big tertiary center, a cardiac center, that might not be so overloading. So being able to test and work out what is the right balance of tasks is, yeah, a really mm-hmm. exciting I'll opportunity. I'll look forward to that. I'm sure people will be on to it. Alrighty. So moving on to our next paper. So that's entitled The Effects of Reflective Pauses on Performance in Simulation Training. It's by Joy Lee et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And so, look, Vic, I'm starting to feel like I need to go to Maastricht because every time I read something from them, it makes me feel like they're very so much smarter Mm. than me. Uh, So this article argues that a core skill in high-stakes time-critical tasks such as surgery or emergency medicine is the ability to adapt your performance by making a series of decisions on demand i.e. they're saying we need to be reflexive in our decision-making. Is this the right choice right now? What evidence do I have to support that? How will I know that that is or isn't the right choice, etc., etc.? And so they argue that a key component of that skill is the actual ability to take a reflective pause, which in itself, in the moment, is actually a pretty complex metacognitive self-regulatory tool skill. And so being kind of the deep thinkers that they are, this research team aimed to work out how can we teach this skill, i.e. a reflective pause, to calibrate our thinking and decision-making for novice learners to hopefully smooth out that transition to expertise. And they propose that cognitive and metacognitive aids might help. And so they break down some theory about cognitive aids that I wasn't aware of before, which was interesting. So they argue that it involves three elements prompts, cues, and leading questions. Uh, And these were tricky for me because they are all uh, words we use in other contexts as well. But within this, a prompt is essentially a prompt to pause at a particular time or period within a task. The cues in this context is a cue to guide us towards what to actually reflect on. And then leading questions are questions designed to guide us away from superficial reflection uh, to instead go for a deeper understanding of the problem that challenges our preconceptions. So you can imagine you might be quite good at pausing, reflecting, and then coming to the conclusion that you're doing an awesome job. Whereas this is saying, no, no, actually, let's challenge ourselves, try and understand this problem at a deeper level. So methods-wise, they recruited a bunch of med students and they ran them through a computer-based simulation game, which I thought was a good format for this type of thing as well in terms of being able to insert a pause without necessarily disrupting another reality. So they were running a gastrointestinal bleeding scenario and the participants, interestingly, had their eye movements tracked to analyze where their attention was. So during this game, they were asked during set pauses, did I miss something important? What did I unnecessarily check? Did I miss any important intervention? What redundant interventions have I applied? And how to improve my performance? So that was kind of the cognitive aid. 
And they're asked to verbalize that reflection during the activity so that you sort of had the force function in it to do it, but also so that the researchers could understand what you were thinking at the time. So the article then attempted to measure a number of things about the learner's uh, performance and uh, cognitive processes. So they used uh, pupillary dilation as a marker of cognitive load, i.e. their brain's working harder so their pupils dilate. Uh, they measured their performance medically via their game score. So did they make the right choices, etc. They measured secondary performance as vigilance. So is this particular med student developing vigilance and maintaining an understanding of uh, an awareness of the patient's obs and changes in that? So they watched the frequency that the learner would move to the patient obs section of the screen. And then finally, they measured encapsulation, which was, you know, the ability to understand the problem as a whole via their handover report. So to measure the impact of their cognitive aid, uh, i.e. those reflective questions, one group of participants had those structured pauses during the scenario where they're asked to talk through those thought processes. But another group were tasked with a different cognitively demanding task, which was to watch and summarize an unrelated video of a, a um, another medical game and assess that game in writing. And I thought that was quite a nice strategy for trying to ensure that both groups had a sufficient task load and to actually test the efficacy of the tool rather than just the pause. So result, anything to add there, Vic, before I go on? Uh, I would agree with your comment about Maastricht and the medical students there are much studied so uh, that must be quite important (laughs) if you like that I really like this idea and I agree with you I like the description of the cognitive and metacognitive aids and that three prompts cues and leading questions because it makes a lot of uh, sense to me to kind of explain it that way so that we know what it is that we're doing I'm sure we'll come back to that when we think about how this might play out um, in our scenarios I guess it's worth saying at this point these uh, involve a few leaps of assumptions in terms of these these uh, measures being outcome measures, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. But, yeah, I think uh, how they set it up was pretty good. Uh, so what did they find in their results? Well, not a huge amount of difference between the groups uh, was my take home. There was some significant difference, particularly in the third cluster, i.e. they broke up the scenario into three clusters, so the back third of the simulation, they did start noticing some differences between the groups with some pupillary dilation in the cognitive aid group decreasing, so which they were making the inference meant that their cognitive load was decreasing, but without any sign of improved performance in the game or handover quality. And they did also note that there was an increased vigilance in that group towards the vital signs, so they were checking them more frequently. So overall, there was kind of some support to the argument that the reflective pause might be able to decrease cognitive load uh, and that it might take time to develop, which does, you know, intrinsically make sense. Uh, the article then goes on to argue that based on these findings, computer simulation designers should apply these reflective moments within their design, uh, although they acknowledge that this could take time to learn and familiarize uh, and that they might take time to show performance improvement. I'm not as convinced about the generalizability here yet, Vic. Uh, felt like a little bit of overreach, even though it was all uh, fair. But I, di- I did really admire this article as a demonstration of different strategies to measure cognitive load and resuscitation performance and the sophistication of the author's thinking around a really important metacognitive task. 
Yeah, a bit like you. Yes. I mean, I don't run a whole lot of um, game-like uh, computer simulations, so I don't feel like I'm an expert on learning in that context. Uh, I think that the challenge of it is that the outcome measures are going to be pretty raw here, so I'm not too surprised they didn't find big differences. I don't know that that means that it's not a useful thing to do, uh, and I'm actually quite happy to take a little bit of the theoretical stuff as almost enough reason to do something like that, given that we don't really have evidence for anything else that we do, i.e. not putting in the pauses. Uh, and to my mind, this helps me understand a little bit why techniques like pause and discuss in our scenarios work quite well, because essentially that's exactly what happens. You run a little bit of the sim and then you pause and, you, and you've chosen a prompt uh, and then you've uh, taken the next step and given some cues that we're going to reflect and then you possibly ask a few leading questions and then you continue on a little bit of the sim and I think we've all seen that being very helpful for primary performance and probably for learning particularly if you do some uh, rapid cycle and get to do it again so uh, I think this helped me understand some other things that weren't actually relevant to the exact experimental work that they did in this, but uh, the fact that they described it and talked about it carefully and had a story surrounding it, I think, was at least as helpful for me as the actual work itself. Wow. How tiny. Wow. Four papers. That was all done. 40 minutes Cognitive well load, yeah. role allocation, psych safety, June 2023. Had it all been? Well, this is Ben and Vic signing off for Simulcast Journal Club. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 